1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sands Pants Radio, Australia's most family-friendly podcast network.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George DeMorellis. This is the show we ask you, what's your story and what does it say about you? Today on the show we have an interdisciplinary social scientist, almost got that right, uh, working across a variety of fields including new media studies, religion and East Asia. Uh, He was born in Seoul but then moved to New York before going to Singapore and then ending up where he's now in Perth. He is an author of multiple books including the most recent Interfacing Death, Living in Global Uncertainty and is a Senior Lecturer of Anthropology and Sociology at uwa thanks for being on the show dr sam Hahn. how are you hey
1: how's it going thanks george for having me on the show
0: it's a pleasure i uh yes it's great to have you on i'm uh, we've had a bit of pre pre-game chat so i feel like i'm gonna to have to try to remind myself what we've chatted about what we haven't yet but maybe the first thing i would want to do just so everyone can be clear on it could you like just quickly in like one second clarify the difference between sociology and anthropology yep and uh this is going to be worse than wikipedia but Uh, The shorthand is
1: that both are the study of humans. Um, Anthropology is oftentimes defined by the study of humans through culture, and sociology is often defined by the study of humans through its organizations and institutions. And one of the ways that that distinction is made is by looking at who uh, we study. So anthropologists oftentimes study uh, what are called, quote unquote, traditional uh, societies, whereas sociology studies studies quote unquote, modern societies. Um, Obviously, those are value judgments and problematic terms. But nevertheless, that's sort of the shorthand that we've used for a long time. Um, But there's a whole bunch of crossover. And they're really twin disciplines. They emerge out of a similar sort of orientation to the world, which is that human beings oftentimes create their own worlds. And it's worth looking at those worlds that we've created to have a better sense of who we are.
0: Right. Yeah. And like, I guess, you, when you're saying that, it actually makes me think of a few things because first I hadn't actually separated them out like that, the difference between culture and institutions which exist and are a result of and yet feed into because I think of like immediately institutions that kind of reinforce a culture, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure you've probably got a million examples. But the one that springs to mind for me whenever I think of this is uh, France and it's uh, quite strong – effort to maintain French language as separate to English. So all these English words that come in from my understanding, they, they keep trying to make a French version of it. So like the internet has a different, like all these words have a French word essentially. Um, yeah. So I guess that's kind of interesting example of institutions forcing culture, I guess. Right.
1: Uh, in some ways you can say that, uh, it is an institution meant to, um, preserve culture, Um, But of course, that means, and anthropologically, you then ask the question, whose culture, which culture, from when, who gets to make these decisions? Because obviously, in the case of France, the people who are appointed to the academy who maintains you know, what is considered French, what is not, um, you know, they also have their own sort of uh, biases and positionalities. And I think all that, in, I think in 2020, all of that has sort of come to the fore, the politics of museums, the politics of gathering knowledge about other people, that's all come to a fore. But yes, I think you know, in France, there's a, there's a strong history, I would say, of preserving Frenchness, whatever that may mean.
0: Yeah, and I guess like that's where I I'm, I'm torn about it because I actually don't mind it. Like I think I look at certain, like especially in the face of globalization, which um obviously is fantastic from getting people lifting people out of a poverty point of view. But like it almost sometimes I look at the the mass media of globalization and like the way it kind of drowns out lo- local cultures in their own distinct way. And like it's like yeah, it's cool. You can eat at every restaurant where you are, but like it almost takes away from that distinct feature. Which and so that's why when I think of something like France and what they're doing, I guess you're right about the problematic nature. But at the same time, I don't mind that effort to be more distinct, if that makes sense. No, I think
1: in, I think I think the impulse is something that a lot of people share. It's a matter of. Who gets to say what France is, right? So, right now, as you probably know, in France, there's been a decades long debate around Islam and around head covering and about religious symbolism in public. So, for instance, if it means if Catholicism is viewed as French culture, well, then how come Islam isn't? There are plenty of French citizens who are practicing Muslims, yet somehow Islam is seen as identifiably un French, whereas a crucifix is. You know, and I think you know, in many ways these discussions are worth having now because, like I said, I'm all for preserving Frenchness as long as people who actually live and embody Frenchness have a say in what that means as opposed to a bunch of 80-year-old you know, men inevitably, you know, 80-year-old straight men who get to say what they think France is, but that's not necessarily what's happening in the streets, in the banlieues, in, you know, regional France. So yeah, I agree. The impulse is great. It's execution. And I guess that's the case with everything. The impulse yeah, yeah. is great. It's how do we pull that off?
0: <laughs> Without, yeah, inevitably turning into a dictatorship, yeah, a cultural dictatorship. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah. and actually, even as you say that, I do think of, um, uh, like, actually, this will kind of relate to the book, as well as where you're from. And like, I think the fact you started in Korea, and you've grew up in America, which I think is really interesting because you were one when you moved from Seoul to the Bronx, which means, like, you are obviously very American at this point, but, like, you would have had a very, very deep uh, appreciation of Korean culture and that would have impacted you because as someone who's the child of Greek immigrants who both were born there, um, although I wasn't born there, so they were a bit older, uh, yeah, it definitely leaves its fingerprints all over you, I feel like.
1: Yeah, Um, I know. It it kind of... um sets you apart from, you know, folks around you, for sure. Mm,
0: which is definitely going to, But uh, which ties to the book. But before we go to that one last, because with this cultural uh, institutionalization uh, uh, topic, because as an American, I think you guys stand, like America stands as a the most interesting example in some ways, because I don't think you've ever seen anywhere, like they were so rich but so late to the game culturally that there was this very, very like it feels like almost a concerted effort on their part to establish culture and norms, Mm. which is the more I look at the history of the states and realize just how not one place they are (laughs) like at all historically, the idea of them imposing cultural like regularities, it seems to me like the most interesting in a way because all these other countries, like they probably have a deeper They've been around for thousands of years they've got stuff which is like more to lean on whilst America really did have to make a conscious decision in some ways to be like, "What are we going to pick as our thing is that a, is that an assessment which uh,
1: no, absolutely, but I think one of the things we have to remind ourselves of is that the United States obviously is a settler colony that doesn't acknowledge itself as a settler colony. You know I think those decisions, the newness that America proclaims is off the back of genocide and then chattel slavery of. Of folks in Africa. So in many ways, the kind of decision making that occurred is always post facto. And it's always going to be a bit romantic. And listen, you know, uh, you know, you probably know as a child of immigrants, and I know as as an immigrant myself, it's easy to get lost in that kind of hope of the new country. But you know, we have to be very clear, especially as, as a person of color in America. It's clear that people who look like me did not even have the right to vote not that long ago. That people had to get their heads smashed in. So it's clear to me that the kind of the not the the kind of um, the institutionalization of what it is to be American is a decision that is obviously racialized, right? And it's politically quite violent, um, even though it feels good. You know, the flag, the anthem hot dogs, hamburgers, you know, that stuff, it feels good. And we all get caught up in it for sure. You know, I grew up in the eighties, you know, thinking I was GI Joe, you know what I mean? Not knowing that, you know, the country that my parents left is one of the last remnants of the cold war. And here I am growing up as like, a—I think I'm Sergeant Slaughter or whatever. Um, But yeah, but all that's complicated. But I think in America, all those, those processes are on the surface because, you know, America for, you know, for various reasons, um, you know, makes those processes quite public and that's something i do appreciate i think um americans oftentimes are quite frank and blunt about these things whereas i think in other places is less so is less so and i think that openness allows for contestation as opposed to there being a single story and everyone having to stick to it
0: Mm. yeah and and again as you started to say how much of that was planned and how much of that which cultures yeah it's like i was reading about like uh geography and that's impact on how societies develop And just so specifically are you next to a mountain or not and that's going to just just change everything in a culture but i'm already going off on too many different (laughs) tangents let's let's look we'll go we'll go to the book and uh Mm. we'll jump around from there i think because uh yeah i am excited to talk about this so uh your book of choice for today is is uh the
1: photographer robert frank's uh probably magnum opus it's called the americans
0: hmm uh, which is essentially a, a collection of photos. Um, it's a photo journal, I suppose, of his time in late 50s America, going a, doing a cross-country a cross look at I don't want to say middle America, because that's probably not the right term, but just people who are not the fancy and glamorous stuff. But yeah, like that. A
1: little bit of that. A little bit of that. It's not excluded. There are some images of, you know, uh, Hollywood movie premieres in high society in New York. So, yeah, it's the broad swath of America. And as Hmm. you note, he takes a trip. He takes a trip across America, which is also a very American thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially, yeah, the whole uh, well, because when I was looking this up before starting, I noticed that uh, yeah, Jack Kerouac was the uh, he gave the forward, which one of the uh, right. very famous beat poets. Um, and yeah, he's hot, he, his stuff is all about that the journey and the romanticization of that because that is a very more distinct American thing. I think that whole idea of the journey across the country like that because, yeah, you can't travel in Europe, you can't travel an hour without being in a new country, so yeah, exactly
1: and i think in many ways in europe the kind of um the the infrastructural or the transportation the image the figure is the train uh the streetcar whereas in america it's the automobile and um robert frank who was a swiss immigrant who came to the united states um won a guggenheim fellowship uh, and he basically traveled across the country documenting regular people which was a very radical idea for a photographer in the 50s, and I mean regular people. And it's called the Americans because some of these images just capture what it means to live in America, in it, and it's in its various strata. You know, not just high society, not just the poor, but across it all. Um, and I think there's a certain kind of, like we were just discussing about our own experiences as immigrants or as children of immigrants. There's a certain kind of immigrant viewpoint that Frank's images, um, demonstrate. And I think that's the beauty of it. And I think that's why Kerouac was so uh, intrigued by it as well. I think, uh, Kerouac being not only a beat, but I think in many ways a romantic about travel, um, you know, I think Kerouac was taken by Frank's ability to sort of slip into a place, capture it, and then keep going. And that's something that I think, uh, immigrants in particular, um, are prone to or are good at because obviously we've left home and tried to create a new home but it's never going to be home and i think that kind of diasporic condition bleeds through every single of the 83 images in this book
0: yeah and i think that, i think that point as well like the fact yeah the fact that he was swiss and coming to america and seeing it with kind of different outsider eyes which uh, obviously, yeah, like you said, it's interesting that we you would find such appeal in that, I guess was that something that you felt a bit growing up, like and again, I guess cause of America's standing, I would say whilst it is. Uh, obviously, very new. Um, it has had put a lot more work into being a more distinctly its own cultural thing, which I would say now when people think of America, there are contrasting and but iconography that's attached to it more so than for somewhere like Australia, which I feel like is even newer and yep. younger and hasn't had that kind of concentrated focus either to define itself so clearly. So for me, it's very easy to be like, it's weird for me sometimes being in Australia because. As a as a person like with a Greek background, it's very easy for me to be like, oh, I'm Greek Australian and not feel the conflict because everyone here is from somewhere else. A lot of the time it feels right. like. But for you growing up, obviously that wouldn't have been as distinct, maybe. So No, yeah.
1: well well, because I think in many ways I was fortunate enough that my parents, my my parents actually the way that my family came to the US was my mother's sister had already been living in Los Angeles. And at the time, you could sponsor a family member. So my aunt sponsored us. And we arrived in Los Angeles. And then for some reason, my father heard that there was work in El, Paso, in El Paso, Texas. So we were in El Paso, Texas for maybe half a year. And then my father worked at a dog food factory. Um, and he thought, it's tough. Um, there aren't other Korean people around. El is a border town. Um, and he thought, you know what, we got to get out of here. So he made the call and uh, you know, I don't know if he made the call. Maybe it was my mother. I don't know the story exactly. But, you know, we finally went to another place. So Los Angeles at the time was the hub of Korean American life. And the other hub was New York City. So, you know, they figured, you know what, we got to be around other Korean folks. We got to be able to um, communicate. Uh, you know, neither of my, co- my parents went to university. Uh, they didn't really have an education. So they went to New York. So for me, growing up in New York was quite distinct because I knew from a very young age that the America that I lived in, was not the America that I saw on television. You know what I mean? So all that to say, growing up in the Bronx in the 80s, I lived in a Korean enclave. You know, I went to a Korean church. My neighborhood was Korean. My school wasn't very Korean, but there were people from all over. Um, I always joke, I really never had met a non-ethnic white American until I got to university. You know what I mean? But that's only because we lived in New York. You know what I mean? And in New York, no one is really a non-ethnic white American. There aren't that many of those around, really. So I didn't think it was that weird because I go to my friends' houses in elementary school. They're speaking a different language at home. They've got weird food happening. They got a funny grandma like me, you know? So it didn't seem all that weird. It's a different version of the life that I led as well. So that sort of feeling out of step, yeah. Like if I watch television and I'm watching, you know, like growing pains and I'm like, wow, that's an American family, I don't see those. You know, certainly my family's not like that, but my neighbor's family isn't like that either. So yeah. the kind of feeling being embedded in in a, in a community full of smaller ethnic communities made it feel like, yeah, I guess this is how it is. Only later did I realize, oh, we're living in a very specific cultural context in New York City. You
0: know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds quintessentially New Yorker as well. I would be like, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, there's another place apart from New York. Okay. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> exactly. Doesn't, no, doesn't sound as good. <laughs> I know. And, and that's the thing. I, I, still, I still have
1: that in me where I'm like, everything is second. You know, like the ideal type is already set. So nothing can ever come close. And, you know, that's such a, it's a ridiculous New York thing, but I can't help it. It's a condition. You know, I wear yeah. it as a part of my neurosis.
0: Yeah. Talking about like culture propagating institutions which propagate culture. I feel like that's one of the bigger, yeah, the romanticization of uh, New York has been.
1: Oh, but listen, George, I can go on and on about how wonderful New York is, but I can also go on and on about how crap New York is. But that's a New York thing as well. Because, you know, None we're of... so self-involved. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the best and the worst. It's the best of times. You have to claim worst.
0: both. You can't just have one. <laughs> no, sorry, your second worst, actually. No, sorry. because who? Did... It's a New Yorker's uh, job. It, it's a point of pride to be able to kvetch about how horrible New York is. I know that's the part where like, although see, look, here's my here's my take. If I was gonna give a take on New York from my very limited time there, I feel like the issue with I have with New York, I'll be honest, and everyone's love of it, is that it's changed from the eighties to the nineties yeah. to now. So anyone who's claiming the things they claim like it's the eighties or the nineties, like it's not. So especially now, I feel like it's so sold out like Manhattan is like it's just oh yeah, yeah. You, you you can't get mugged in Manhattan if you tried like no, you see there is no. there it's not what it was so when people walk around and they're saying oh it's the best and the worst it's like are you still thinking of it like the 90s where maybe it was more distinct but now it's yeah it's gentrified on a whole scale which i think yeah it's that's, that's yeah my i mean view having it, you know. having
1: lived through that it, it's a stark contrast it is a stark contrast but again it's home and as you know it's like Home, like you're not an objective observer of home. You know what I mean? It's like family. You know, it's like I don't. You know what? My opinion's always going to be biased because I'm yeah. in it. You know,
0: and I can make fun of it, but you can't, all yeah. right? <laughs> it's, it's... No, no. I'm
1: sort of I'm sort of um, ecumenical about this. Listen, New York is a hard place to live. So if you can do ten years in New York, you got it. You can claim to be a New Yorker. I'm not one of these people that's a purist because it's hard, man. So it's like you know what? If you can do it for a decade, that's you. You
0: can claim it. Go ahead. Ah oh, man it's hard everywhere you bloody new yorkers god it's called <laughs> life
1: <laughs> no i would say living in perth not that hard okay and come yeah, on no, george no. come on george in in australia i learned a very important phrase here too easy Everything is too easy.
0: <laughs> look, we can go into the the sad, slowly filtering problem with that. But yeah, no, look, you're totally <laughs> no, right. Exactly. It is nice. Yeah. Like when you, you just go for a run at lunch and like you're next to the most beautiful water on a beautiful thing and it, the air is so clean. Yep. And then, yeah, no, it's 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 nice. I will agree with that. No. But to go back to the book now, I guess. Because yep. like, yeah, it, it's funny you're saying all this immediately. Obviously, makes very clear in an almost uh, – boringly obvious psychological way of why you would be interested in sociology and anthropology, mm. because it sounds like it was something you were aware of the whole time almost, like especially sitting there in your ethnic community. Um, is that is that fair to say? Like you didn't switch to it? You kind of were always...
1: Yes, I just didn't have a name for it. You know, I think, you know, we all had to sort of be sociologists or anthropologists growing up because, you know, you're living amongst folks who are seemingly so different from you, but also so similar to you. And that's kind of, you know, it's a trip, you know, you're like, whoa, like how are these folks so different, but so similar? And I think trying to kind of reckon with that was the kind of first spark of my sociological imagination. And, um, just to tell you a bit more about my background, um, I was fortunate enough to, I went to public schools in New York, uh, for the first, uh, up up until sixth grade and in seventh grade, which is middle school in the States. Um, I, was part of a program called prep for prep. Uh, and, um, I was lucky enough to go to, you know, one of the most kind of prestigious private schools in New York city on scholarship and sort of seeing that distinction, that dichotomy, um, and that school that I went to was also in the Bronx. So to have grown up in the Bronx and then to be kind of exposed to a different world, but you know, just a bus ride away, it, it made me really kind of, you know, uh, stretch my social scientific imagination. Like what, what's going on here? How is it that these folks exist in a very small area? And I had no idea that they were there. I didn't know that this world had existed. So yes, I think in many ways, sociology was simply me figuring out my place in the world.
0: Right. And like, was that, was it still ethnic, uh, basis in that private school as well? No. So that private school was probably 80% Jewish. Um,
1: It was a a specific kind of private school. Uh, It's called the Ethical Culture Fieldston School. And it's known as one of the most progressive private schools in New York City. Um, To kind of give you a picture of it. um, It's sort of like uh, what we would call in the States, like a a limousine liberal school or like a champagne socialist school. So people who are quite wealthy, but kind of very left wing, Send kids there. And that's why when I was in school, you know, I think somewhere around 30% of the student body was of color. So it's one of these places that, you know, is very expensive to go to, but they have progressive values and things like that. So it was perfect for me. I, I love it. It worked
0: out great for you. Yeah, yeah, no,
1: absolutely. But I mean, the contrast, it was so different. You know, like hmm. in sixth grade, my middle school, my public middle school, had metal detectors because kids were bringing in guns and knives. And then I walk into a school where it costs someone 17 grand at the time to send their kid there. You know what I mean? It was hmm. a complete 180.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. yeah. That's really going to spark that kind of yeah look you had. So I guess uh, uh, to look at that further, in terms of this book, The Americans, when yeah. did you first see this book, I guess? Ooh, so
1: at this school, one of the amazing things was the uh, kind of investment in arts education. So in middle school, so for seventh and eighth grade, we had to do all the arts, Dance, music, photography, uh, printmaking.
0: It's the best right? liberal school ever. Of-
1: <laughs> yeah, it was amazing because you know it's that American thing where you have to be a well-rounded individual. It's that sort of liberal arts tradition, right? Where, mm-hmm. oh no, you can go off and do whatever you want, but you need to be well-versed in the arts, in dance, in music, etc. So I remember studying photography in eighth grade, and you know when you learn photography, and this is you know obviously uh, this is pre-digital. You know we all had to learn how to shoot film. We had to develop film. We had to do all that. And I remember, and we only shot black and white really. And I remember encountering this book in eighth grade because it's a classic. This is a classic in what's now called documentary photography, photojournalism. I would say it's the precursor to street photography, which really explodes in the sixties and seventies. Um, so I remember looking at these images and just being taken by the, by them, you know, it's aesthetic quality, it's messiness, but also, um, kind of uh the meaning behind it and not a singular meaning meaning you know you can look at the image and get so many different things out of it and you're looking at all parts of the frame it's it's full um and so poetic you know to me and kerouac uses that term in his introduction to the book it's poetry he says if you don't like poetry you don't like these pictures and i remember just in eighth grade being like whoa i didn't know you can do this with photography um so it was really in eighth grade where I first encountered it. I didn't really understand what was going on, you know, but I thought it was cool. Only later did I, you know, come back to it thinking, whoa, there's a lot here.
0: Yeah, like I said, the deeper meaning, just like seeing the rawness of it all that. So did you, uh, have you maintained an interest in photography since then? Mm-hmm.
1: So this is so interesting. I mean, I've always loved um, photographs, you know, just looking at photographs. And, you know, I didn't take pictures for a long time. So after eighth grade, I stopped. It's only during the first kind of lockdowns here in Perth we weren't in lockdown for very long, but in twenty twenty, so long where, days. I know <laughs> it was like a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, you know, during those periods where you know you can only go out, you know, um, with one or two other people in your household, and you can only go out for an hour, where I was like, you know what? Maybe I should start taking photos again. So I bought like a camera, and I really just started doing it, and I would go every day, and then I caught the bug again. And you know, I really sort of immersed myself. And after our lockdowns were lifted, I really just started hitting the streets. It was so therapeutic, It felt so good, um, only because you know during the pandemic, everyone is so atomized, everyone's so individuated, right? And once we were kind of back out, you felt connected to the world, because you're looking for certain things. And I think growing up, um, I've always been interested in the details. You know, um, you know, one of the things, um, as a sociologist in particular, you know, you make, you get to see that the small things mean a lot, you know, like, you know, nowadays there's a lot of talk on the internet and otherwise around the notion of a microaggression. Right. And that's to mm-hmm. me quite interesting. Cause I think it elevates and sort of expands our understanding of racism. Racism isn't simply not being allowed in one space or not being given an opportunity based on one skin color, skin color, ethnic background or whatever it's in the small things like being asked, where are you from? No, where are you really from, right? So in those small details, it's what I've always been interested in as a scholar. But you know, with a camera walking around, you get to capture those small details. And I felt like, I, I don't know, I just felt reinvigorated. So in 2020, I just started taking so many photos. I just went nuts. And it was, I think it was a form of therapy, you know? Mm. So it's only recently that I've kind of... Um, Kind of re—I've I rediscovered photography, so that's when I, you know, bought a, a whole spate of photo books um, to kind of right. re-educate myself, re immerse myself.
0: Right. So uh, just apart from that, like kind of class in year eight, uh, you since then you didn't actually take any lessons or anything. It's been more just self-teaching recently yeah. for that and
1: just uh, yeah recently and just uh, appreciating photographs i've always appreciated photographs
0: okay well th- th- that's like i'm glad because i actually would want to ask this question which might be bad or like dumb i don't know but with this specific book because it keeps talking and like my theory is i think i know the answer but it keeps talking about the rawness of the photos and this is a distinct feature on which i do want to talk about that as well but the part that i think uh, is interesting is are they good photos like, mm. from a professional point of view are they actually good photo like, it, like oh, guy just took a snap and it's like it makes it sound casual and it's just a raw moment but like obviously you can do that and then the person's half chewing and blurry and it's not that good or you can do that and it's raw but it's also a good photo so is that like part of the appeal of this is it distinct yeah. in that sense
1: well i think george you're wrong and that's a good question that's not a stupid question at all that's a okay. good question that is the question i think frank is responsible for what is called the snapshot aesthetic so prior to frank prior to the fifties people took very technically sound photographs, right? Everything is in perfect focus, the lighting is perfect, the exposure is perfect. What Frank was able to do was basically rewrite what we understand to be a good photograph, right? Because I think what Frank basically was able to do was he was able to capture moments, right? And fleeting moments where we can find beauty, not simply in the lighting, the subject, the framing, but the moment itself. So I think when I look at Frank's photographs, I think, oh, he's capturing moments, right? And that's what he cares about. He's not interested necessarily in a technically good photo. Some of them, and to be honest, these photographs were not seen as very good photographs by the photographic establishment. Plenty, in fact, he couldn't get an American publisher. These photographs were first published in a book in France, And they were a second, they were were accompaniment to text. It's only when those images in France gained some kind of traction that an American publisher said, hey, we should put this out on its own. And I think in many ways, what Frank was able to do was to say, well, what do we mean by a good photograph, right? Because what's, for me, a good photograph is a photograph that you can linger on, that you can look at over and over and over again and discover something new. Um... And it's not necessarily about beauty, or rather it's about rethinking what beauty is. Because all of this is about, as you said, rawness. And by rawness, it's not, sim- it's not staged, you know? These moments are just moments that he came, a- 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 came upon. And I think that's such a, um, and I don't wanna sound cheesy, but that's such a democratic thing that you and I can have in our phones. We have very sophisticated phones now, right? Our cameras are quite good that we can just be taking a walk and encounter a scene and snap an image, right? And that's all that matters. For Frank, it's putting in the hours, it's traveling, it's being open to moments. It's not about whether you know how to work a piece of machinery, you know? And, And I think I love that. I love how democratic that ethos is, which is that it's not about fancy equipment. Of course, if you have fancier equipment, you have better photos technically but is it a moment? Is it something that you want to keep looking at? Maybe, maybe not. And that's not determined by how expensive your camera is. You know, that's determined by your eye, you know, and your eye is not simply your eye, but about, I think your attitude, you know, your orientation to the world. And I love that. I think we can see here that Frank has a certain orientation to the country.
0: Yeah. like, that's It's a bit of what I was talking about, but also like, I think the idea that because uh, I just want to imagine, I'm picturing someone who hasn't seen this and we're talking about this and they don't know what this is. Mm. And I just, and because especially since since then, which I actually hadn't thought about the fact that he started that, which I think is a meeting of technology and timing as much as anything else, which I do exactly. want to talk about with you as well. Yeah. But, um, just in terms of the fact that, yeah, any of us can catch a raw moment and it might even be a good scene, but some of those photos still don't, actually capture it that good you look at afterwards, you're like fuck that was such a good moment but that isn't actually that good a photo of capturing that and i would say what makes him good as well because i'm guessing even on this tour across america he probably took thousands of photos yeah and then he's picked yeah so then he picked the ones which do that so yes i guess in that sense they yeah they're still filtered through something so it's, it's 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 technically raw because <laughs> it's yes, it's a, yes. it's perfectly capturing that moment i guess is yes. what i mean yeah which
1: yeah I- and i think like you said it's a it's a meeting of technology and aesthetic orientation in many ways um frank used the leica and leica was the first sort of handheld camera because if you imagine the history of photography it started in studios right where you have a giant you know frame and that's the negative you know it's like four by five you know um and, you know, you have to be, you have to be very still. It's like those family portraits that, you know, people take, right. Um, but to have something as small as this, right, I'm, I'm showing a picture of a camera and <laughs> yeah. to be able to walk around and just snap images, right. Um, it's a different thing because that means there's a certain degree of mobility and of course, you know, like he's traveling across the country and he's taking thousands. I believe he took tens of thousands of, sh- of photographs and only 83 are in this book. And I think in many ways, you're right. It's how, how, to, how to match that sort of content and form. You know, he's looking for something, obviously. And I'm sure there are plenty of amazing moments that just didn't come out right. You got the exposure wrong. Somebody was moving or whatever it is. Um, but that's the discipline. That's the practice. For me, it's, it, you know, to, to, to be able to... Taking photographs is the point in making photographs, you know, because the hit rate is so low. Anyone who's taken any photographs before, someone who's even taken photographs at like a friend's birthday party, they know that it's probably what? One or two out of 36, you know? That hit rate is very low. But that's what you're chasing, you know? Mm. That once in a while, you'll catch a stray. And that's fun. I, You know, it's like a gamble. And I, I'm sure in the film era, it was more of a gamble because who you can't even preview the image. You're just hoping to God that something develops, you know? Mm. And... And I, and I think it's amazing. You know, it's this, this work and Frank generally, I think is someone who, um, just put in the time, like did the work because if there are 83 of these images, who knows how many were left on the cutting room floor? Yeah. Tens of thousands now.
0: Yeah. That's a, uh, like, I do, I, I agree hundred percent your thing. It makes me think of whenever I go traveling, I, I love taking plenty of photos, but one thing i am always very militant about, uh, is sitting there. As much as possible, usually to be frank, sometimes on the toilet, but uh, just going through and just cutting, yeah. cutting, 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 because like if you don't do it at the time, you're going to end up your trip with fifty trillion photos and whatever. So I've I've, I've slowly developed like, this style. My one is always uh, if they're at all close, you'd be like, which one of these? Just instead of looking at ten, just look at two always. Just which one's better of these two, and then delete, delete, delete. My goal is to eventually have one photo that sums up my whole life that's better than all the rest. <laughs> that's I love I love that the perfect I mean, photo. <laughs>
1: that's amazing well people say that about writing right writing is always rewriting you know it's always editing right uh faulkner has that famous line you have to kill your darlings right and basically what he's getting at is that you can't grow attached to your words because a good piece of writing is going to come from subtraction not addition mm.
0: yeah. yeah and so it's going to be and it, the the better the stuff that the harder it's going to be that you still have to do it like as in yeah as you especially get towards the end it's going to get harder and harder So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To go into the technology side of things, because I only did a cursory glance at your list of books that you've written but Hmm. it seems like the interaction of technology with culture is a big part of your like history or what you're you seem to really look at especially these books all seem to be referencing uh technology interacting with different elements of culture like you had religion and death and uh media so this is it's tangentially rated because i do look at like obviously he's because Firstly, it's so impossible to tease out any one strand with this stuff. Like, Because in, in terms of, to go back to the book for a second, the fact that he was capturing that at that moment, which is late 50s America, which is just when all this stuff was happening. Anyway, so how can you separate out the technology from the people? Like all these voices that had previously gone unheard were very much the 60s iconically in America is where all those voices started shouting, essentially. Right. So that's like right. the fact that he took these photos in 59, but that's just when those cameras became... Like uh, it's just hard to tease out any one thing.
1: No, I think it's all there. It's all sort of amalgamated. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, just think about it. The fifties is that kind of in the United States when the post-war boom really occurred. So you have the rise of consumer products, you have, you know, automobile culture, you know, I think all of that kind of speaks to, and appliances are really kind of readily available for people, um, that sort of consumerism really emerges in the '50s uh, in the United States, and I think there's, you know, those consumer products assume a certain kind of desire for people to want gadgets. You know, I mean, to to us now, of course, like you know, people are staying up late to see what the new Apple event's going to be. What's the, you know, what are the new specs for the new MacBook or the iPad or whatever, whatever? We're already kind of embedded in all that. But I think it's the 50s where a consumer orientation really emerges. And I think Frank um, kind of captures that as well. There's so many images from his car, of cars, et cetera. Um, and I think that's quite um, revealing historically. Um, and the 50s, obviously, with the consumerism, um, also is when you have the precursor to the 60s, right? You have the emergence of feminism. You have the emergence of civil rights. Um, You've got all, and you have the emergence of the critique of consumerism. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, by the time the 60s come around and you have all the kind of student movements and the student protests, the 50s is really when all this is bubbling up. And it's only in the 60s that it emerges, that it kind of um, is, is, is desublimated, if you will. And I think the that, that class, it's, this comes out in fifty nine. This comes out in fifty nine, that transitional moment, right? Mm. So many of these images are about race. Of course. You know, anyone who comes to America who looks at America without thinking about race is not, you know, is not is not understanding reality. And I think Frank captures it in such a way, it's so striking. And I think it's that transition, right, that Frank points to. And I think the technological transition is also there. The 50s, again. You know, if you look at the cars, if you look at dishwashers, toaster ovens, all these things are all coming out, you know, in the 50s. And then by the 60s, you have full-blown consumer capitalism. You know, you have people buying stuff for the sake of buying stuff, right? And, and just to bring that to my um, scholarly interest in technology, you know, when we see something like digitization, right? And that sort of moment where everything can be done through something like a computer, work, play, entertainment, that obviously means something for how people interact with one another. What is culture, if not a means of communication, right? And I think in many ways, if you have a technological revolution, quote unquote, like computerization, digitization, of course, it's going to impact how we relate to one another. And I would go so far as to say how we relate to ourselves, what we mean by being human, right? One could even argue that the definition of the human is always a reflection of the dominant technologies, right? Like if we leave the okay. house without our if, – if we leave the house without our cell phones, we feel naked. People say that all the time. Oh, my God, I don't have my phone today. I feel naked. Isn't that interesting, right, that we're so reliant on this that this feels like clothing, like armor, Right? Or people say, Oh, I need to turn off my phone, screen time. Isn't that interesting? That so much of our world and our lives are attached to our phones, right? That we feel that we need to regulate that because we're so immersed. So surely this has some kind of impact or it has to have an impact on anthropology and sociology. And I've always felt that way because having been born in the eighties and lived through the nineties and two thousands, I feel like I lived that period where, you know. I remember the day my family got cable television. I remember the day that we got cable internet, you know, broadband internet. So not having that as a default, right? Makes me really think, whoa, things are changing as a result. Not only because technology has changed, but technology is, if not determining our situation, it's resetting what we mean by the default settings, if you will, right? How we communicate, how we relate to one another. All these things, and I think, of course, COVID has made that even clearer. But yeah, I've always been taken by what technology has done, in, in a grand sense, but in a small, granular sense. You know, like, you know, I remember walking around with my Walkman, thinking this is the most incredible piece of technology ever. And now, a Walkman, what, what is that? You know, ah, no, it's
0: still amazing. No, no, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's due I for agree. a comeback as well, but no, be, please. That's yes, iconic. I, I, was, I was slightly older, I think, so I, I was more a uh, slightly younger. I mean, so for me, the Discman was more than the Walkman, right. but uh,
1: or even that to same be able sort of to thing. carry
0: music around. Mm. You know, yeah, and at least the dis I feel like the Walkman didn't skip as much. The Discman was always. So is problem, I know, you know. I know. You <laughs> need to get the sports version. Yeah. Otherwise, you tap it and it's like skip. It's like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> mini disc. That's that's the future. Uh, yes, yes. I, I, remember I thought mini for discs. a while, <laughs> <laughs> mainly because of my older brother loving that stuff. But I guess so. The, and I don't know if this is a topic to even. That's. I don't know what I'll be asking when I say this, but I guess one of the other interesting things about this is that, um, yes, you've got the way we communicate with each other, which is obviously. That's now, especially the web is obviously the biggest change of that. I would say, I think it's bloody, it's, everyone says it, since the printing press essentially, yeah. which is a bit different, but also kind of related because like when you look at something like the fifties, yes, you had uh phones and stuff and that kind of going that way. But what there was different as well. And I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this was the capturing of it, which was really like a big change then, like all of a sudden that's part of these voices finding themselves because like all of a sudden you could see them they weren't not seen before so like that element of the technology which i would say is very much happening now with twitter and all that sort of thing and mm. these live streaming like is yeah. that a thing as well and is that different do you see it as separate or the same or yeah
1: no i think so i think in many ways the 50s is the beginning of consumer products so the technology has always sort of um, been ahead of what's available on the consumer market right so you know people had cameras except the only people who had cameras were professional photographers. It's only when it becomes available to the masses that it really makes an impact, right? So cameras, people finally in the fifties, I think it was still quite expensive to own a camera, but by the sixties and seventies, everyone was getting cameras, you know, documenting what's going on at home, documenting trips, et cetera. And I think that sort of relationship between Uh, consumption and sort of mass availability is really where technology makes an impact. It's not an accident, George, that Marshall McLuhan, the famous media theorist, writes his first book, Understanding Media, or not his first book, his most famous book. It's published in 1964, right? You know, just five years after the Americans. And I think that's not an accident because he's, and you know, his famous phrase is that the medium is the message, right? So it's not simply what's contained in you know, the message, but how the message is relayed that is as important, right? And I think it's really in that late 50s, early sixties moment where that um sensibility is becoming um popularized and people are really experiencing it because it's the kind of rise of television sets in the home. It's as you said, the kind of the beginnings of a certain kind of technological orientation that we now are sort of living in fully. And I think a lot of that has to do with, to go back to your question, about who is able to produce and who is able to consume. And I think um, what we start, what what, what we had in the 50s and 60s and 70s were people consuming things and just being able to produce a a little bit. So you couldn't really um, make music, you know, unless you went to a professional studio, et cetera. Now, you know, you can make music on your phone. And I think that divide between production and consumption has slowly eroded and blended into one another. And one could arguably write the history of technology in the 20th century along those axes, production and consumption. Like now, it used, it used to be, right, that producers were professional producers. They had to buy expensive equipment. They had to make it. They had to make big investments. And then they give it to us for us to consume. And we don't even want to produce. All we want is to consume. Now we are able to produce and consume and distribute. And I think that sort of shift in the directionality of culture has, made, been, has been made possible by technological innovation, right? Mm. And surely that's going to have an impact on how we make meaning, how we communicate, how we define ourselves, all the, how we understand the world in terms of scale, access, all those things. So I think we're living through very kind of interesting times when it comes to all
0: this, Right. So like, I guess uh, to possibly ask you an unanswerable question, but what is the meaning that we're going to find out? What is the values? How is it going to change us, this new switch in your head? Like, I guess, because again, it's just, this does seem like a moment, which I'm guessing you could say this about any point in the last 50 years since the Americans came out, essentially, but it does feel like now we are very much mentally going through a shift because of this interaction with technology. So do you have any... Theories. I know. Uh, yes, yeah, some of your books seem to touch on elements of this. Uh, yeah, but yeah of do you have any theories.
1: Yeah, I think we've always, um, you know, we've always been mediated through some sort of technology. But I think we were convinced that we were in control, right? That technology, science, um, were all, you know, serving humanity, so to speak. I think we're now living in an era, and I think in public discourse, this is very clear, that we're not so sure of whether technology is serving us, right? I'll just give you an example, George. Think about all the hand-wringing around Facebook, right? And about the kind of major deleterious effects Facebook has had in various parts of the world in terms of free elections, in terms of COVID misinformation, disinformation, et cetera. And think about all the criticisms that are... um, uh, I think rightfully so, um, laid at the feet of Facebook because Facebook wants to have the influence and power without the responsibility. And of course, I don't know if you've kept up, there's recently been a whistleblower who used to work at Facebook, who's given congressional testimony about how Facebook understood the impact that it was having on young girls in terms of body image, on various sorts of elections across the world. right? And what's interesting is many people people who, you know, are way smarter about this than me have suggested that we need to start regulating Facebook just like we regulate the fossil fuel industry and how we used to regulate in America the, the the tobacco industry, right? And in many ways that's so different because I remember when I got Facebook for the first time, right? And I remember thinking, "Whoa, it's free?" But we now realize that it's not free. There's always a cost, right? And I think that's where we're now seeing a different sort of understanding that technology isn't simply for us to use. Technology contains certain biases, certain values, certain proclivities that as a result of us interacting with it, we also take on to some degree. And I think having that um, awareness is a good thing. I think we're hopefully, I don't know if this this is going to actually happen, but I think having that sort of understanding with the impact of technology or having that understanding of the impact of technology is always going to result in better outcomes because you know we can't simply just say oh well facebook they're a media company you know it's free like how can we regulate them no no no. facebook themselves they understand the impact that they have on elections you know on um people's body image so if that's the case, well, then we need to have as a society a conversation about, well, how much are we willing to give over to them, mm. right? Especially because Facebook wants to have the power and influence. They just don't want the responsibility. Yeah. You know, if they didn't want the power and responsibility, then fine. We won't regulate them. But if that's what they want, then, hey, they got to play ball too.
0: I mean, this is – look, I, I it's hard for me to kind of – so essentially, I would almost say – It's slight pushing back on an element of that because Mm. I'd say the issue with Facebook is, and maybe this is literally impossible, but the idea that it's neutral in terms of, and that's why I would compare it to media because I'm not even sure what the media rules are in America, but Mm -hmm. I would say it's almost like saying you can't have money able to influence the decision making so much so the issue right now isn't that it's neutral it's the fact that whoever's got the most money can then spend the money on the campaigns which can influence elections and influence thoughts and minds so it's not neutral at all it's actually just a wild west of unregulation where like anyone who's got the most power can then maintain that stance and that's obviously goes against when you can influence the actual policies from that, that goes against Mm -hmm. everything that democracy stands for, if you have any Mm. belief in it at all. It goes against even what the free market stands for, because it's no longer free at all. So if you're a free market proponent, or if you're a rabid socialist, either side, you'd be like, this isn't free at all. This is just completely one group controlling it. So the only people who would love it, I guess, are monarchists or dictator lovers, essentially. Yeah, monopolists. Yeah, so like, as in in that sense, yeah, I I almost don't know if it's a reflection, probably there are elements that tie in with human base instincts, which maybe we don't want to foster, but I would say the fundamental issue is that, the fact that it's almost opaque and that certain groups can do whatever they want, essentially, and get away with it. And that's obviously why Facebook might be tentative in changing it because they pay money.
1: No, and I think that's exactly it. I think in, in many ways, Facebook is simply, um, it's not unusual. Facebook is exactly adhering to the logic of the world today. They're not doing anything different. You know, they're doing what every other company does, except they just have a billion plus users. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's why they're getting a lot of attention. I mean, think about it. Think about all the money in politics here in Australia, in America. All these companies are not catching heat like Facebook because they just don't have the user base. You know what I mean? But Facebook has a massive user base and their product is a techno is a media service, is as opposed to, you know, think about you know, the resources sector here in Australia that basically are able to fly under the radar, even though uh, it's pretty clear how it is that they're able to influence policy, for instance, right? And this goes all the way up. Think about, you know, all the backlash that Australia has gotten at COP26, right? So (laughs) in many ways, Facebook is in the crosshairs, not because Facebook is unique, but because they have so much power and influence and a big user base. But they're they're not acting any differently than any of these large corporations, for sure.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's like where I guess that's the issue more so than uh, the technological factor is the fact that it's just the big money interest issue, I guess, in that sense. But but
1: I must say the way that Facebook influences us is quite unique, right? Obviously, there's been a lot of studies both in-house, but by scholars um, of the way in which scrolling on Instagram, for instance, affects us, right? Um, All the messaging that can happen through algorithmic calculation. It's quite different you know, um, the targeting that can occur, you know, because of course, Facebook tracks everything when it is that you hover over an ad, when it is that you log on, when it is that you log off, um, you know, and, and they do all sorts of calculations. They algorithmically process all that and they give you exactly what you want when you want it. That I think is quite, um, unique, right. And I think that sort of dynamic is something that, um, we need to have a a broader cultural conversation around right Mm. um what is the nature of its influence and whether we're comfortable with it because again you know i i I am not comfortable with the position well that's just what they do they figured it out let them you know let them go wild i don't think so i don't think we you know if we if we believe in um self-rule and sovereignty right then i think we can say to facebook hey um you need to make these changes, or we've agreed that we're only, you know, that um, you shouldn't be able to do these things, or you should be able to do these other things. I think those are, um, you know, conversations that are now happening, and I'm happy that they are happening.
0: Um, um, yeah. No, definitely. I, 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 yeah, I agree. I think, just like I said, from any point of view, unless you just love dictators, that's the only reason I could think of. Like, yeah, I'd but love...
1: George, there's a lot of people who do love dictators.
0: Look, they make you feel strong when you love a big man. <laughs> you know, give it to all those softies. Yeah. I know. I know. I
1: know. You know, as as someone, you know, who's, you know, who presumably knows something about people, I'm still like naive. I'm like, people like dictators, but yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's appealing. It's comforting. They provide you security. So yeah, I I think in many ways, um, what you said is correct
0: actually on, on that point it's because it's, it's a book i read that's one of those books that really stuck with me for a long time and uh to be honest maybe i seeing what his position's been on other stuff has made me maybe think that i shouldn't hold it too high a standard but uh jonathan hate brought out a book called the righteous mind have you yeah. heard of it yeah i know
1: no, no i know i know who jonathan hate is but i haven't read that i haven't read that book
0: yeah so i mean he seems to be one of these school of well, I agree with him a lot of stuff and then it seems like he just goes in a wrong direction I'm not sure about, but uh, he talks specifically about the idea that um, moral centers in human beings or their, ethic- their ethical basis, the issue that uh, a lot of the left in general has is that uh, base everything on the idea of fairness and equality, but that's actually only one of apparently, scientifically where they've measured it, uh, provable moral centers that people have. And actually it's more like People have like different taste buds of morality, is how yep. the thesis he puts forward, and he no, he narrows it down to like five, but but also saying obviously there's more than this, but here's five main ones, and like yeah, one of them was about fairness, but then another one was about like a need for like authority figures and like a structure. Another one was about uh, divinity versus uh, humanity, and that was, a, and then another one was like about uh filth, like cleanliness versus like filthiness, like, and mm-hmm. they would just do all these tests to kind of these very broad labels, but seeing as if people would base their morality on these things. So like how much divine are you? How clean are you? How, how structured are you? And that was where modern, let's say more liberal thinkers would be mistaken because they only focus on the fairness doctrine rather than on these other forms of morality that seem to actually be a real cornerstone of how people think.
1: Yeah. I no, I think that's exactly it. I think in many ways, um, the problem with, classical liberalism. And by liberalism, I mean with a lowercase l. You know, that liberal, not politically liberal, but I mean liberal as in, you know, what modern Western culture is, the belief in the individual, the belief in reason, the belief in science. I think one of the kind of problems with that model is that it assumes that everyone is acting in good faith and that if you educate them enough and you give them enough information, they will make the right decision. I don't think that's true necessarily because there's certain elements of who we are where we're quite capable of doing really bad things, right? Um, Hannah Arendt, um, who was, you know, one of the most kind of uh, prescient kind of thinkers in the 50s, wrote about the banality of evil. And what she's talking about is Nazism, that evil doesn't emerge because people are evil. Evil emerges because people are just following orders. They're unthinking. Right. So to prevent evil is to not get rid of this metaphysical theological idea of evil, but it is to ensure that people are thinking twice about what they're doing. Right. Mm. And I think in many ways, just to bring it back to the Americans, the 50s was a period where people thought in America, we got it good. We came out unscathed. We won in World War II. And look at it. We got so much stuff. We got cars. We got houses. We got lawns. We got picket fences. We got dogs. We got everything. Everything is great. And what Frank does is he goes across the country to show the fissures of American society just below the surface, in particular having to do with race, Right? And I think that to me is wonderful about Frank, but I think it's the 50s that really does that, which is the 50s is the period where America for a long time, maybe other parts of the world experienced a certain kind of um, kind of positive vibes about how things were going and after that wh- where he takes he puts a critical lens, a literal critical lens on that idea of progress, the idea that everything's good, everything is shiny and I think that's something that that always appealed to me as a sociologist. It's what's under the surface, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, you know, just to go back to what you were saying, um, it's not all about fairness. There's a lot under the surface having to do with resentment. Um, like you were saying about hate's work, that one of the kind of, um, one of the, one um, criteria in that typology, not criteria, but one element of that typology has to do with cleanliness, um, desire for authority. I think those things... Uh, for like a, a person who believes in like the liberal project of the West assumes that no, 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 who wants uh, an, an authority figure? We all are autonomous, rational individuals. And I think uh, those are people who have uh, a very skewed understanding of human nature. Hmm. Um, I think anyone who's ever read Freud, for instance, would understand that. I think anyone who's ever read Camus would understand that. I think anyone who's ever been in love would understand that. But uh, you know, you there mean? are plenty of people. Well, because I think in many ways, uh, the experience of love or, being, or infatuation is a kind of giving up of the self, that you don't feel like yourself, right? You feel complete, you know, and I think those are experiences that, you know, we don't like to feel like we're out of control, right? And I think control is what, assume, the idea of control is what can give us the sense that we can be, that we can be fair. And I think I'm, I always operate from a position where, no, we have to, in spite of ourselves, try to be fair. Fairness is not something that is unlocking something that's already innate. It's in spite of my baseline unfairness that I have to try to create something like a just world. you know what I mean? Because I don't think that people just left to their own devices are going to create just and fair social orders. Historically speaking, that hasn't occurred. You know what I mean? Oh, like, it just hasn't:
0: Yeah, I mean I, and it's crazy for me to argue with the <laughs> sociologists and anthropologists sure, on course. this, but I'd feel like uh, that that falls, that's almost at risk because as someone who uh, loves evolution, I always hear that argument that, oh, man's actually brutish and we're left to our own devices, we're cruel and hierarchical, but I feel like history actually disproves that whilst also, yes, a million examples of the opposite, but the fact that is that like uh, the, most people actually are nice, <laughs> fundamentally, and it's just the messiness of life that can make us confused and Misunderstood, and usually a lot of the time it can have to do with external forces playing on those base desires of us. So, if you've got an understandable fear of uh, your family being hurt, that can very quickly translate into you being angry at foreigners, let's say, for example, yes, or yes. something like that. So, I feel right. like a lot of time being I don't want to give I don't want to let that go and just say, Yeah, I agree 100% because I don't fundamentally agree. Like, I think people can too easily be like, It's dog eat dog, baby, we got to force the good. It's like, No, nah, I think humans have multiple, we contain multitudes. And I think it can depend on the structures that we're within that can then like twist those into good and bad, essentially. But I would say like, yeah, that's-
1: No, I totally agree with what you said. I think in many ways, for me, yes, everyone is nice, but does that create good outcomes? Because listen, let me tell you right now, if we took a survey of every Australian and asked, are you a racist? No one would say yes. Maybe a couple, yeah.
0: but no one would say <laughs> Definitely yes. would more you... than a couple. <laughs> yes, but George. But no not you... near would... the amount, yeah. Exactly. But would you
1: agree that racism exists in Australia? Certainly, because racism doesn't exist because there are racists. Racism exists because of, like you said, the social orders that we've created. So for me, whether people are nice or not nice is besides the point. Are we creating institutions, structures, and social orders that create a just world or a fair world, if that's what we want? We can agree and say, that's not what we want. Well, then let's just call it what it is. We want a fascist social order. But if indeed we want fairness and justice, right, then we have to also acknowledge, like you said, that whether we're nice or not is not going to create nice outcomes because plenty of nice people do bad things. You know what I mean? And I think that's the thing. And I think in many ways our inclination towards, well, if I act nice, then nice outcomes will you know, occur. I think that's a result of this idea that if I really feel it on the inside, it'll kind of play out in the world. But mm-hmm. as a sociologist, as someone who studies structures, I know that doesn't exist. Yeah, you, you know what have, I mean?
0: You would have right? many examples I feel like I've seen.
1: Yes, and I, think, and I think in many ways, in spite of ourselves, right? so in many ways I'm asking for a certain kind of humility, a sociological humility you know what? We have all these fancy things. We've got immense computing power. But the 20th century was the century where more human beings killed other human beings. Right now, in 2021, right, almost 2022, the gap between the richest and the poorest is bigger than it's ever been. So, you know, we're living under, you know, extraordinary circumstances where humanity, quote unquote, has done a bunch of stuff. But guess what? that that fundamental divide still hasn't been figured out. And that's not because we're not nice. In fact, I think it's because we think we're too nice. We need to start being real with ourselves. And like you were saying, we need to, you know, understand ourselves, perhaps as flawed, but that shouldn't spiral into a nihilism, like you said, because that is a danger. The the spiraling into, well, it's dog eat dog. It is what it is. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to protect it. No, I think that's the wrong way about it. The right way is We are all capable of doing some pretty bad stuff, and that's why we need to be good about what sorts of institutions. And institutions are nothing. Institutions are simply embodied structures of norms and values. And guess what? We determine norms and values, or we can. We can. You know what I mean? But we got to do the work. (laughs) But the tough thing is we got lives to lead. So it's hard, man.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's – look, and – because we should, probably should tie it off soon. Uh, yeah, I guess in, in that sense, the uh, a part of that is capturing what we actually are doing and who we actually are right now, which obviously the Americans did very, seems iconically back then, and I guess is what sociology and anthropology is all about. Um, I like how you put it there, George. Yeah, yeah. see, look, I'm, I'm all good at just tying it all together, baby. You got it,
1: baby. Yeah, man, <laughs> and just like it
0: was printed in Korea. No, I don't know if that happened. Yeah. <laughs> just trying to tie everything together at once. Um, the only one tiny quick thing at the end, just because I want to know, uh, in terms of like Robert Frank's work, do you see that still happening now or is it happening now but it's not seen as much or it's happening now and it's seen so much that it's irrelevant? It's kind of what I'm seeding my own opinion but uh, do you see like or where it's not happening you think it would happen more and the difference between countries like is there anything you want to talk to that because that's probably the last thing I'll yeah, say no, that's we... a good
1: question i think the legacy of frank um is in the tradition of street photography so frank is seen as you know kind of really popularizing what's called a snapshot aesthetic and then after frank um I think there are kind of two trajectories. One is photojournalism, you know, like war photography, things like that. And then also street photography. So it's sort of capturing the mundane. So I would say the, the biggest inheritor, inheritor of Frank's aesthetic are the street photographers that really emerged in the 70s and 80s. Vivian Meyer, uh, Gary Winogrand, Joel Meyerowitz, Helen Levitt. I can go on and on. Um, Diane Ar- Deanne Arbus. Um, these are people who just looked at the mundane and try to find things to capture in the mundane. And I think that is really where Frank's legacy was embodied. I think today, as I was saying earlier, we all carry around very sophisticated cameras with us. And you can ask, well, we're taking pictures of everything and circulating everything. Has it now become, has the mundane become mundane? And that's a question I ask in my recent book on death, which is, you know, have the images of, for instance, uh, one of the things I look at is, the, the constant circulation of, of, uh, of traumatic scenes. You know, I, I look at the image of a young boy who was washed up on the shore in Turkey because his family was trying to migrate to Europe. Mm-hmm. I, I talk about the, uh, the, the, the images circulated around um, um, police killings of young Black men. Um, and has have these images been circulated so much to the point where we don't really empathize with the suffering? And that's a very real question. Right. Because you can say the opposite, which is that the circulation of these images have galvanized people to take to the streets, you know. Um, but I think in many ways we're living in an era of capture. And I love that you use the word capture. And I think because we have a capture instinct, you know, everyone's on their phones, everyone's on their phones, that we can, on the one hand, be lost in that sort of sea of images. But I think in many ways we still have that these images oftentimes, not because the image itself is um poignant, but because how they become distributed, how they're used, how they're um, kind of speaking to certain things are still able to create very important um, political moments. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, that it's a very different era. You know, it used to be that certain images used to kind of create national conversations. We don't have that anymore. We don't, because there's so many of them. But I still think that, you know, think about Instagram. I mean, we're looking at images all the time. So there are, you know, as scholars like to say, there are affordances of technology, but there are also limitations of technology, and we're, we're we're we are now realizing that we almost have to live with both. You know, we can't the the thing that kind of frees us also ensnares us, and I think we just have to be aware of that.
0: Yeah. No, 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 no think I agree, and I actually your your insight here because I think one of the things i don 't appreciate photography sometimes maybe as much as I as the art form it's just one of the ones which i haven 't probably focused on as much the idea of looking at it in terms of that snapshot of that moment, I think that framing is a good way to maintain that rem- memory in your head you 're not just looking at colors l- looking a certain way, you're looking at a snapshot of a moment which uh yeah yeah i could i could i might uh i actually I looked at the book, I think the Americans could be a good starting point for me to yeah start to appreciate It's a photography great, it's great more. one. Um, awesome. Well, I guess uh, that's about it. We've gone on—I like on forever, but we should call it there. Uh, the anything, I guess, at the end here, you want to shout out in any way? I'm—I'm I'm not sure if that's putting you on the spot any websites or anything at all.
1: Yeah. Well, you can. You know, I—I um, I take uh, photographs. Uh, I have an Instagram. Uh, my Instagram, and I'll—I'll I'll send this to you via text. But it's uh, instagramcom slash D-o-l-o period graphs. G-a-r-p-h-s um so yeah that's where my images are it's linked on my website as well so yeah
0: all right yeah i'll check in the show notes too okay awesome well uh thanks a lot uh dr sam Han. that's been really fun thanks like really interesting happy to george (laughs) all right cheers Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at SansPants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.